Section 19 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. Song Literature of a Romantic Period, Part 2. With Schubert, the lead appears, so to speak, ready-made. After his early years, there is no more development toward the lead. There is only development of the lead. In his 18th year, Schubert composed a song which is practically flawless, the Erlking, and continued thereafter producing at a mighty pace, sometimes nodding like Homer, and ever and again dashing off something which is matchless. In all, he composed some 650 songs. Many of them are mediocre, as is inevitable with one who composes in such great quantity. Many others, like the beautiful Todesmusik, are uneven passages of highest beauty alternating with vapid stretches, such as any singing teacher might have composed. He wrote as many as six or seven songs between breakfast and dinner, beginning the new one the instant he had finished the old. He sometimes sold them at 20 cents apiece, when he could sell them at all. It is easy to say that he should have composed less and revised more, but it does not appear that it cost him any more labour to compose a great song than a mediocre one. On the whole, it seems that Schubert measured his powers justly in depending on the first inspiration. At the same time, it has been established that he was not willfully careless with his songs, not at any rate with the ones he believed in. A number were revised and copied three and four times, but generally his first inspiration, whether it was good or bad, was allowed to stand. Now this facility is not to be confounded with superficiality. Schubert, taking an inspiration from the poems he read, went straight for the heart of the emotion. No amount of painstaking could have made Amer more profound in sentiment. His course was simply that of nature, producing in great quantity in the expectation that the inferior will die off and the best will perpetuate themselves. The range of his emotional expression is very great. It is safe to say that there is no type of sentiment or mood in any song of the last hundred years which cannot find its prototype in Schubert. His songs include ballads with the touch of the archaic, like the Elking, lyrics with the most delicate wisp of symbolism, like Das Heidenröslein, Heather Rose, with the purest lyricism, like the famous Serenade or the Praise of Tears, lyrics of the deepest tragedy, like the Inn, or pathos, like Death and the Maiden, of a most intense emotional energy, like Aufenthalt, of a merriest light-heartedness, like Hark, Hark, the Lark, or the Wanderlied, and of a most exalted grandeur, like the Allmacht. It would be out of place here to estimate these songs in any detail, for they have a personal quality which makes the estimating of them for another person a ridiculous thing. Like all truly personal things they have to the individual who values them, a value quite incommensurable. Each of the best songs is unique and is not to be compared with any other. They are irreplaceable and their value seems infinite. Hence the praise of one who loves these songs would sound foolishly extravagant to another. We can here only review and point out the general qualities and characteristics of Schubert's output. With one of his earliest songs, Gretchen at the Spinning Wheel, composed when he was 17, Schubert establishes the principle of detailed delineation in the accompaniment developed so richly in the succeeding decades. The whole of the melody is bound together by the whirring of a wheel in the accompaniment. 
But when Gretchen comes to her exclamation, and ah, his kiss, she stops spinning for a moment, and the harmonies and the piano become intense and colourful. This principle of delineative detail, even more than the durchkomponierte form, constitutes the difference between the art song and its prototype, the folk song. The details become more and more frequent in Schubert's songs as his artistic development continues. They are rarely realistic, as in Liszt, but they always catch the mood or the emotional nuance with eloquent suggestiveness. A free song like Die Allmacht follows the varying moods of a text line for line, but Schubert did not follow his text word for word as later songwriters did. He felt what the folk singer feels, the formal musical unity of his song as apart from the unity in the meaning of the words. He was never willing to admit a delineative detail that involved a harsh break in the flow of beautiful melody. It was his choice of melody, much more than his choice of delineative detail, that gave eloquence to his songs. This melody is of great beauty and fluency from the beginning. The lovely songs of the spectral tempter in the Erlking could not be more beautiful. Yet this gift of lovely melody becomes richer, deeper, and even more spontaneous as Schubert grew older, richer and more spontaneous than has been known in any other composer before or since. It is nearly always based on the regular and measured melody of folk song, and rarely becomes anything approaching the free, endless melody of Wagner. But beyond such a generalization as this, it can scarcely be covered with a single descriptive phrase. It was adequate to every sort of emotional expression, and was so gently flexible in form that it could fit any sort of poem without losing its graceful contour. The Erlking, perhaps Schubert's best-known song, it is certainly one of his greatest, is a perfect example of a ballad, or condensed dramatic narrative poem a type which had been cultivated by Zumsteg, but had never reached real artistic standing. It demands sharp characterization of the speaking characters, and especially some means of setting the mood of a poem as a whole, in order to keep the story within its frame and give it its artistic unity. The former Schubert supplies with his melodies, the latter with the accompaniment of triplets, with the recurring figure representing the galloping of the horse. Without interrupting the musical flow of his song, he introduces the delineative detail where it is needed, as in the double dissonance at the repeated shriek of a child, a musical procedure that was revolutionary at the time it was written. And if there was nothing else in the song to prove genius, it would be proved by the last line in which, for the first time, the triplets cease, and the announcement that the child was dead is made in an abrupt recitative, carrying us back to a realization of the true nature of the ballad as a tale that is told, a legend from the olden times. It must always be a pity that Schubert did not write more ballads. He is commonly known as a lyric genius, but he could be equally a descriptive genius. Yet only the young nun among the better known of his songs is at all narrative in quality. Schubert's form, as we have said, ranges all the way from a simple strophe, or verse form, up to the verge of the declamatory. He was extremely fond of a strophe, and usually used it with perfect justice, as in the famous Who is Sylvia, Hark Hark the Lark, and Ave Maria. Very often he uses the strophe form modified and developed for the last stanza, as in Du bist die Ruhe, or The Serenade. Again, as in Die Allmacht and Aufenthalt, the melody, while being perfectly measured and regular, follows the text with utmost freedom. And finally, there is Der Doppelgänger, which is scarcely more than expressive declamation over delineative accompaniment. The music of the future, exclaims Mr. Henderson. Wagner's theories a quarter of a century before he evolved them. 
A number of Schuberts are grouped together in cycles, a procedure practiced by Beethoven in his Antiferne Geliebte and brought to perfection by Schumann. Schubert's 24 songs, The Fair Maid of a Mill to Words by Müller, tell the story of a love affair and its consequent tragedy enacted near the mill by the side of a brook which ripples all through the series. The songs tell a consecutive story, somewhat in the fashion of Tennyson's Maud, but the group has little of the inner unity of Schumann's cycles. The Winter Journey series, also to Müller's text, is more closely bound together by its mood of old-age despair. The last 14 songs which the composer wrote were published after his death as swan songs, and the name has justly remained, for they seem one and all to be written under the oppressive fear of death. They include the six songs composed to the words of Heine, whose early book of poems the composer had just picked up. What a pity, if Schubert could not have lived longer, that Heine did not live earlier. Each of these Heine songs is a masterpiece. Schubert's literary sense may not have been highly critical, but it managed to include the greatest poets and the best poems that were to be had. His settings include 72 to words by Goethe, 54 of Schiller, 44 of Müller, 48 of his friend Meyerhofer, 19 of Schlegel, 19 of Klopstock, 19 of Körner, 10 of Walter Scott, 7 of Ossian, 3 of Shakespeare and the immortal 6 of Heine. And though he was not inspired in any very direct proportion to the literary worth of his poems, he responded truly to the lyrical element wherever he found it. Writing at about the same time with Schubert were the opera composers Ludwig Spohr, Heinrich Maschner and Weber. The song output of these men has not proved historically important, but they have to their credit the fact that they were true to the German faith. Marschner's songs are not altogether dead today, and Weber's are in a few instances excellent. They come nearer than those of any other composer to the true style and spirit of a folk song, and reveal from another angle the presiding genius of Weber's operas. The place for the ballad, which Schubert left almost vacant in his work, was filled by Johann Karl Gottfried Karl Löwe, born only a few months before him. Footnote in 1796 at Löbeyun near Köthen. He was educated in Halle, patronized by King Jerome of Westphalia, Napoleon's brother, and later became municipal musical director at Stettin. He died in Kiel, 1869. End of footnote. The numerous compositions of his long life have been forgotten except for his ballads, and these have lived, in spite of their feeble melodic invention, by their sheer dramatic energy. Löwe's ballads depend wholly on their words, that is their virtue. As music apart, they have scarcely any existence, but Löwe's dramatic sense was abundant and vigorous. A study of his setting of the Erlking, as compared with that of Schubert, will instantly make evident the differences between the two men. The motif of a storm is more complex and wild. The speeches of the Erlking are strange and mystical, as far as possible removed from the suave melody of Schubert. The voice part is at every turn made impressive rather than beautiful. Superficially, Schubert's method looks the more superficial and inartistic, but it conquers by the matchless expressive power of its melody. Löwe's ballads compel our respect in spite of their lack of melodic invention. They are carefully selected and include some of the best poetry of the time. They are worked out with great care and are conscientiously true to the meaning of the words as songs rarely were in his day. They are designed to make an impressive effect in a large concert hall. 
They have a considerable range from the mock primitive heroics of Ossian to the boisterous humour of Goethe's Sorcerer's Apprentice, and in their cultivation of a declamatory style and of the delineative accompaniment, they were important in the musical development of the age. Schumann was not, like Schubert, a singer from his earliest years. He was at first a dilettante of a piano, and as he grew up dreamed of becoming a virtuoso. He was enchanted by the piano, told it his thoughts, and was fascinated by its undiscovered possibilities. His genius came to its first maturity in his piano works, and all his thoughts were at first for this instrument. He did not write his first song until 1840, that is, until almost the end of his 30th year. When he did take to songwriting, he wrote furiously. There was a reason for it, for after several years of passionate lovemaking to his Clara and of almost more passionate stubbornness on the part of her father, the young people took the law into their own hands, quite literally since they had to invoke the courts, and were married in 1840. The first happiness of married life and the anticipations leading up to it seem to have generated in Schumann that demand for a more personal and intimate expression than his beloved piano could offer. Though he had never been a rapid writer, he now wrote many songs at a stretch, as many as three or four in a day. He seemed unable to exhaust what he had to say. By the time the year was over, he had composed more than a hundred songs. He declared himself satisfied with what he had done, he might come back to songwriting, he said, but he wasn't sure. He did come back to it, but not until his creative powers were on the wane. In the last six or seven years of his life, he wrote more than a hundred new songs, but hardly one of them rises above mediocrity. All the songs that have made him famous, and all that are worthy of his genius, date from the year of his marriage. Just what, in a technical way, Schumann was trying to do in his first songs, we do not know. It is probable that the ammunition for his unusual harmonic progressions and his freer declamatory style came from his own piano pieces. Fundamentally, we know he admired Schubert almost without reserve, having already spent the best part of a year in Vienna, unearthed a number of Schubert scores, and spread Schubert's reputation to the best of his ability. Yet there is hardly one of Schumann's songs that could for a moment be mistaken for Schubert's. So different was the musical genesis of the two composers in their songwriting. Schumann is a part of a Schubert tradition, but he is just so much further developed, whether for the better or for the worse, may be left to the theorists. With Schumann, the tendency of detailed musical description is carried into a greater number of songs and into a greater variety of details. The declamatory element increases, both in the number of songs which it dominates and in the extent to which it influences the more melodic songs. The part of a piano is tremendously increased, so much so that the Waldesgespräch has been called a symphonic poem with recitative accompaniment by the voice. The harmony, while lacking in Schubert's entrancingly simple enharmonic changes, is more unusual, showing in particular a tendency to avoid the perfect cadence, which would have hurt Franz Schubert's ear for a time. Schumann's songs are commonly called psychological, and this much-abused word may be allowed to stand in the sense that Schumann offered a separate statement of a separate strands of an emotional state, while Schubert more usually expressed the emotional state pure and simple. No songs could be more subjective than some of Schubert's later ones, but many, including Schumann's, have been more complex in emotional content. But perhaps the first thing one feels on approaching the Schumann songs is that they are consciously wrought that they are the work of a thinker. 
This is no doubt partly because Schumann, with all his gifts, did not have at his disposal Schubert's wonderfully rich melody and was obliged to weigh and consider. But it is also quite to be expected from the nature of the man. While Schumann's songs are by no means so rich as Schubert's in point of melody, there are a few of his tunes, especially the famous Widmung, which can stand beside any in point of pure musical beauty. Still, it must be admitted that Schumann's truly great songs, even from the output of 1840, are decidedly limited in number. To understand better what is meant by the word psychological in connection with Schumann's songs, let us turn to his most famous group, The Woman's Life and Love. The first of the group, Since My Eyes Beheld Him, tells of the young girl who has awakened to her first half-consciousness of love. It is hero worship, but it is disconcerting, making her strangely conscious of herself, anxious to be alone and dream, surrounded by her half-sensuous, half-sentimental mist. The music is hesitating and broken, with many chromatic progressions and suspensions in the piano part, which rob it of any firm harmonic outline. In the whole of a voice part, there is not a single perfect cadence. The melody is utterly lovely, but it sounds indefinite, as though it were always just beginning, only here and there it rises into a definite phrase of moody longing. In the second song, the famous Er der Herrlichste von Allen, the girl has come to full consciousness of her emotion. Her loved one is simply her hero, the noblest of men. The music is straightforward and decisive. The main theme begins with the notes of the tonic chord, the bugle notes. There is no lack of full cadence and pure half-cadences. In the third song, the girl has received the man's avowal of love and is overcome with amazement, almost terror, that her hero should look with favour upon her. The voice part is scarcely more than a broken recitative, and the accompaniment is largely of short, sharp chords. Only for one ecstatic instant the melody becomes lyrically lovely in the richest German strain. It is on the words, I am forever thine. In the sixth song, the mother is gazing at her newborn baby and weeping. The voice part is free declamation, with a few rich chords in the accompaniment to mark the underlying depth of emotion. In the eighth and last song, the husband has died. The form of a song is much the same as that of a sixth, only the chords are now heavy and tragic. As the lamenting voice dies away, the piano part glides into the opening song played softly. The wife dreams of the first awakening of her love. The effect is to cast the eight songs into a long backward vista, magically making us feel that we have lived through the years of a woman's life and love. This, easily the most famous of song cycles, is the type of all of them. Beethoven wrote a true cycle, but his songs are by no means equal to Schumann's. Schubert wrote cycles, but none with the close bond and inner unity of this one. Nor are Schumann's other cycles, Myrtle's, the Liederkreis, song series from Eichendorf, and another under the same name from other poets, the Poet's Love from Heine, the Kerner cycle, and the Springtime of Love cycle, so closely bound as this. The song cycle on this plane is a triumph of the accurate delineative power of music. Almost as much as of this type of psychology, Schumann is master of a delicate picture of mood, as in Die Lotusblume, Der Nussbaum, and the thrice lovely Mondnacht. His musical high spirits often serve him in good stead, as in Kerner's Wanderer's Song. In To the Sunshine, he imitates the folk song style with remarkable success, in the short ballad, he has at least two works of supreme beauty, the Waldesgespräch, already referred to, and the well-known Two Grenadiers. 
There is a certain grim humour, one of a few lyrical qualities which Schubert never successfully attempted, in his setting of Heine's masterly, The Old and Bitter Songs. And finally, one song that stands by itself in song literature, the famous Ich Grolle Nicht, admired everywhere yet not beyond its deserts. Here is tragedy deep and exalted as in a Greek drama. Though it is disconcerting to note how much more seriously Schumann took the subject than did his poet Heine. In 1843, when Schumann had made his first success as a songwriter, he received from an unknown young man a batch of songs in manuscript. With his customary promptitude and sureness, he announced the young man in his journal, The Neue Zeitschrift für Musik. This man was Robert Franz, who, many insist, is the greatest songwriter in the world, barring only Schubert. Footnote. Originally, his name was Knaut, but his father changed it by royal consent to Franz. He was born in Halle in 1815 and died there in 1892. He became organist, choral conductor and university musical director in his native city. An assiduous student of Bach and of Handel, his townsman, he combined a contrapuntal style with Schumannesque sentiment in his songs, of which there appeared 350, besides some choral works. His critical editions of Bach and Handel works are of great value. Almost total deafness cut short Franz's professional activity. End of footnote. Franz, it seems, had had an unhappy love affair and had taken to songwriting to ease his feelings, having burned up all his previous compositions as worthless. Schumann did for Franz what he did for Brahms and, to some extent, for Chopin, put him on the musical map, and that on the strength of an examination of only a few early compositions – through his influence, Franz's Opus One was published, and thereafter, steadily for many years, came songs from Franz's pen. He wrote little other original music, save a few pieces for church use. His reputation refused to grow rapidly, for there was little in his work or personality on which to build reclame, but it has grown steadily. The student of his songs will discover a high proportion of first-rate songs among them, higher probably than in any other song composer. Franz is one of those composers of whose work little can be told in print. It is all in the music. Unlike Schubert and Schumann, he limited himself in his choice of subjects, taking mostly poems of delicate sentiments and avoiding all that was realistic. Unlike Schubert, he worked over his songs with greatest care, sometimes keeping them for years before he had fashioned them to perfection. His voice parts are, on the whole, more independent than Schumann's, they combine perfect declamatory freedom and accurate observance of the text with a delicate finish of melodic grace. The accompaniments are in many styles. Broken chords he uses with distinction, so that the individual notes seem not only harmonic, but melodic in their function. In him, more than in previous songwriters, polyphony, deriving from his familiarity with Bach, plays a prominent part. He is a master in the use of delicate dissonance, and in some ways the poetry of his accompaniments looks forward to the atmospheric effects of what we loosely term the Impressionistic school. He does not strike the heights or depths of emotion, but his music at times is as moving as any in song literature. Above all, he stands for the perfect and intimate union of text and music in a more subtle way than was accomplished either by Schubert or Schumann. Mendelssohn wrote many songs during his days of fame, which had a popularity far outshining that of the songs we have been speaking of. They sold in great abundance, especially in England, and fetched extraordinary prices from publishers. 
but by this time they have sunk pretty nearly into oblivion. They are polished, as all his work is, and have the quality of instantly pleasing a hearer who doesn't care to listen too hard. Needless to say, their musicianship is above reproach, but their melody, while graceful, is undistinguished, and their emotional message is superficial. Chopin, however, composed a little book of Polish songs which deserves to be immortal. They purported to be arrangements of Polish melodies together with original songs in the same spirit. As a matter of fact, they are probably almost altogether Chopin's work. In them we find the highest refinement of melodic contour and an exotic poetry in the accompaniments such as none but Chopin at the time could write. The Maiden's Wish is perhaps the only one familiar to the general public, and that chiefly through Liszt's piano arrangement of it. But among the others there are some of a first rank, particularly the Bacchanale, My Delights, and Poland's Dirge. In the intervals of his busy life, Liszt managed to pen some sixty or more lieder, of which a large proportion are of high quality. They suffer less than the other classes of his compositions from the intrusion of banality and gallery play. In them, Liszt is never the poet of delicate emotion, but certain things he did better than either Schubert or Schumann. The high heroism often mock, which we feel in his orchestral writing, is here too. He had command of large design. He could paint the splendid emotion. His ballads are, on the whole, among the best we have. In his setting of Uland's The Ancestral Tomb, he caught the mysterious aura of ancient balladry as few others have. When there is a picture to be described, Liszt always has a musical phrase that suits the image, and in a few instances, as in his settings of Der Du von dem Himmel bist and Du bist wie eine Blume, he achieved the lyric at its least common denominator, the utmost simplicity of sentiment expressed by the utmost simplicity of musical phrase. It was a feat he rarely repeated, for in these songs he painted not only the picture but also the emotion. In Mignon's song, Knowst Thou the Land, he has put into a single phrase the very breath of homesickness. His setting of The Lorelei has already been mentioned. It could hardly be finer in its style. The preliminary musing of the poet, the quivering of a dimly remembered song, the flow of the Rhine, the song of the Lorelei, the sinking of the ship, are all described. Still finer is The King of Thule, which, with all its elaboration of detail, keeps to the sense of archaic simplicity that is in Goethe's poem. In his settings of Victor Hugo, Liszt was as appropriate as with Goethe, and we find in them all the transparency of technique and the delicacy of sentiment that distinguishes French verse. In all these songs, Liszt uses the utmost freedom of declamation in the voice part, with fine regard for the integrity of the text. End of section 19